We pressed a flower into this page. It spent so many good days in tight embrace with the poem. An early bloom, its cool perfume, was plucked before the breeze could steal it. Now it paints so many good words, and can you feel its purple spring in each grain of paper? Hey everyone, welcome to a new semester of Soul the Scene. This semester is all about nature. I think it's going to be a plethora, a spring of inspiration for Aaron's poems, yes. as you can see yes. from this first one. Well, this is actually an old poem, mm -hmm. but I wanted to use it because, yeah, nature, that just makes me, among other things, inspires me to write, inspires me to do. And one thing that I have done, along with you, is make a zine to accompany the semester. So we're going to flash that very quickly. There is a short episode also on the solo scene that you can listen to, which describes that more in detail. But if you want to read it, feel it, buy it, rip it, you can rip it. Um, just click the link in the description. So nature, this is our fourth semester. For those who don't know, solo scene works like... Solo scene is a school. Okay. It's a school of thought. Right. It's a revolution, a movement, a project. We're all students. And... Aaron and I are inspired to keep learning throughout our adult life. We started Solocene right when we finished university and liked the structure of semesters, having projects, the zine, yep. or whatever other project we may do to accompany the semester, having assignments, questions. So the first week we come up with a few questions, and then from there we have a conversation, and obviously new questions will arise for next week for you, the listeners, to think about and ask the podcasters to think about an answer on the next week's episode. Each semester usually comes with a new kind of revamp of the whole project and just some new things popping up throughout. And I hope I get, did a good job of describing why they're semesters. It was weirdly good. Did you rehearse that? No. I feel like that's your elevator pitch. Yeah, it would be. Another thing about the Solocene semesters is that they all are going to build a picture of the ideal future that is beautiful, sustainable, and tactile instead of just rushing through every week transportation, internet, mental health. Like we're, We go into depth on all the aspects of the ideal future. This one's about nature and the ideal future right. and your role in nature. And our first question is, how does nature relate to the previous three um, semester topics, those being degrowth first and foremost, then education, and then storytelling? And in each of those, obviously, we talked about nature, but not in depth. So those being three of our favorite topics, let's connect. Mm -hmm. Ooh, look at me. Let's connect. So we'll start with degrowth because that was our first semester. Yeah. And degrowth is kind of an umbrella term for economic and social ideas, which endorse scaling back growth for the sake of sustainability and humanity. Mm -hmm. Still growing but much slower and healthier. Yes, on a smaller scale, localized growth. So the way that this relates to nature, I had a few ideas. One, degrowth talks a lot about urban living because that's where a lot of problems are multiplied due to the number of people. Hmm. So I think one way it will relate to nature is talking about urban agriculture, urban forests, and how people in cities can stay connected to nature. And not just cities, I mean... Even if you're in a pretty small town with a few thousand people, you get disconnected from nature due to urban sprawl and the likes. Yeah. Another way that I think it relates is that degrowth is just, in my opinion, one of the best solutions that has been posed for fighting climate change. Well, of course, that's like the, it almost goes unsaid. Yeah. <laughs> how important that nature is the main kind of um, underpinning for most advocates for degrowth. 
the reason is because of climate change. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, like 50%, no, more than, like 90% of degrowth advocates come from a point of fighting climate change. Mm -hmm. 10%, which we might partially fall into, <laughs> is like fighting the social yeah, unsustainability. This would just be nicer. Yeah, <laughs> or a mix of the two. Also, kind of what you said about infrastructure and, and urban agriculture and things, I just think that taking inspiration from the the cohesion of nature, amongst other things, like the, the way it all just works, to quote mm -hmm. Apple, the systems, it's a kind of biomimicry, which degrowth is. It's mm -hmm. almost like a like an infrastructural biomimicry or a holistic biomimicry. I'm just coining these phrases, I think. But in the way that I was thinking about an ecosystem, a mountain, you have um, rain or melting snow, and it runs downhill into a pond or lake or river where there are creatures feeding off it and all these things. That's not how we build our systems. Like water doesn't run downhill, to speak metaphorically. Mm -hmm. we, we kind of pump it uphill. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. So yeah, that's um, holistic biomimicry. Yeah, I like that. I mean, nature is a circular economy exactly. of matter and that's a good point. energy, and so, we should be too. So most of our ideas are taking cues from nature in some mm -hmm. way or another because it's so healthy and it works so well and it's worked for so long. Mm -hmm. Self-correcting yeah. too. Yes. <laughs> the next semester we did was education. And this one, the link was strong but like discreet it's not completely okay the way degrowth and nature are just kind of one and the same perhaps education i think how it will relate we'll talk a bit about nature education in this semester about how in the solo scene people will learn a lot more from nature in the way of trying to find inspiration for art and innovation but also from learning how to respect your ecosystems that you live in how to identify plants just like those skills that we've kind of lost over the last 50 to 60 yeah. years. We actually have a whole episode from the education semester, which was about learning from nature. But I think we can kind of flip it and talk from the other perspective almost mm -hmm. in this semester. And what you just said, obviously, about learning local stuff was a note that I had for the degrowth connection, mm -hmm. which is that if you ignore nature right now, so many places in the world are starting to look exactly the same. Like the idea of local disappears when you when you take away localized flora and fauna and climate mm -hmm. so that's why i think nature is another kind of distinct point in degrowth and as for education it has a, i had a poem if you don't mind me reading it i don't mind this one is not mine it's from a certain mr wordsworth and it's a very famous poem so it says my heart leaps up when i behold a rainbow in the sky so was it when my life began so it is now i am a man so be it when i shall grow old or let me die the child is father of the man and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. I think people usually just call that poem, The Child is Father of the Man. Mm -hmm. And that idea of we are all made into who we are when we're young in education. And obviously in that poem, um, he's talking about the, the awe that children have, A-W-E, when they look up at the sky and they see the sun or they see a rainbow or just the beauty mm -hmm. of nature, which so often is kind of ground down into a cynicism or just a, a mundane fuzz when you when you age up mm -hmm. or grow even yeah. so i think in education one of the one of the key um, elements which is being kind of ignored right now is preserving that sense of wonder preserving that mm -hmm. sense of awe and as the romantic poems will call it the the transcendent and it doesn't mean keeping it um, into mysticism we can still educate 
but we should educate in a way that I think enlightens us as to the transcendent rather than yeah, just making it mundane. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my point for that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And the other point I had was just about empathy mm-hmm. rather than apathy, because in the same way that I think our wonder gets ground down into just, yeah, like we have the tunnel vision, also our kind of boundless love and empathy that we have as children, that also twists into something that is uh, scared and generally quite selective and Mm -hmm. reluctant. Whereas you see it with like children, if they find a bird who has its wing injured, like, oh, we have to fix it. The most adults are like, nah, I don't don't, don't, want to do that. Yeah. So I think that kind of empathy is also um, one of the things that's missing when we talk about let's say, the mass extinction, because we always do so from an anthropocentric point of view. We don't actually care about animal suffering. Mm. I think education can also help combat fear and like the shutdown that happens yeah. when things when you learn about things happening in nature. Mm. If you learn about a volcanic explosion or some like natural disaster or even something small scale, well, that's in air quotes, like, why is the weather warm this October? It can be like scary if you just know well, because of climate change. But if you know about the science and perhaps how you can help or specifically form a reaction and not other than fear, I think education can help empower that. Also, perhaps a more narrow interpretation of the word fear and empathy is like if I heard about this very important species of spider that was going extinct in the rainforest and it was huge, mm-hmm. I would think good riddance <laughs> yeah because i'm i'm terrified of spiders but i think that exposure that makes kids who are less scared of spiders mm-hmm. and there's still a, obviously a healthy respect for the creatures of the wild and also for the idea of the wilderness the myths that it represents and we'll talk a lot about that in the semester i'm sure but we should we should love spiders and snakes and insects and all those ugly things which are also facing big crises I mean, you're talking about the myths of nature. I mean, that goes through everything we probably talk about is the idea of the wilderness. That's like crucial to the Solacene idea of rewilding, not just literally planting and allowing things to regenerate, but rewilding in our minds of just like, that's the wilderness. Let it be. (laughs) Or like, that's the wilderness. If I'm going in there, I'm going with almost spiritual respect for these Mm. beings I mean, in some cases, literal spiritual respect, but it's just like these trees, these fungi, these animals are powerful no matter how big or small they are. And that goes in with our storytelling semester, Mm. because it's like if you don't narrativize nature, I think you can very quickly lose respect for it. If you get too pragmatic and too, these are the facts, it's 1.5 degrees, it's well, the sea levels are rising by one meter. It's like, yeah. oh, it's just one meter. But if you narrativize and you're like, the sea levels are rising, <laughs> there's going to be, an, like, if you make it more of a story, even if the story is completely true, people will resonate more with it. Yeah, you're right. It's like the, the, the documentaries that show the polar bear on the melting ice. Mm-hmm. That's the way that we can increase empathy because mm-hmm. we're showing it. Like, if you just told people, well, this many habitats are destroyed every year, People don't care, but if you show them this one documentary about a polar bear, you know, looking sad, then mm-hmm. then that's that. Also, I think next week we can talk about what you just kind of mentioned about the wilderness um, mindset, almost the frontier mindset, and we can talk about humans' role in nature, whether we are stewards, whether we are guardians, whether we are separate, whether we're part of it, 
and I've heard compelling arguments for both of these, mm -hmm. but I think that we should discuss it in depth. Yeah, it's a good idea. With storytelling, I was also thinking about how it can kind of function as the other half of conservation or preservation. There is the one half which comes to mind when you think of those words. Um, charities, foundations, buying land, preserving it, doing data, you know, um, reserves, and like the practical saving of nature. Yeah, just hands-on yeah. conserving nature. And then there's also the, the conserving it in people's memories, which yeah. I think can be so strong. Mm. And as we try and do on this um, episode in our imaginations of the future, mm -hmm. those are all fed by stories. Like you read a book and like, wow, they used to learn about this animal, which is extinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way that it relates to storytelling is that nature is the the root of all art, of all religion, of all ideas, of like of everything. Like everything comes from nature. So I think it's going to relate a lot to the art and like the visual arts, but also like the stories. I guess that's more visual arts than like from the storytelling semester, but it's mainly the narratives in these paintings. It's like if it was just a painting of a tree, it'd be what whatever. But without mm -hmm. with the story that you can attach to that tree from your own experiences or from the artist talking about it, that's just yeah. incredibly powerful. Well, it shapes the narrative of our life. One of my favorite pages in zines, I guess we'll spoil it, is about the <laughs> seasons. We have the four seasons represented. And that, until today, like I talked about the local places being ground down so that everywhere's the same, so too are our seasons. Summer's air-conditioned, winter's heated, and all this food from the grocery store and imports all the time, so um, food doesn't really change for the year. But so too did the seasons for most of humanity shape the narrative of the year. People mm -hmm. were very happy at this one time. Festivals, feasts, harvests, parties, and quite sad, let's put it like that, seasonal affective disorder for uh, these other months. And that was just, that's like, that was the shape, that was the story of mm -hmm. of how we experience time. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's flattening, which is one thing. Do you think that storytelling can save nature? Would you put it like that? I mean, that's the premise of the podcast. Mm. So, yes. I think we should talk about that wording next week. Mm -hmm. Saving nature. Yeah. Saving nature or are we saving ourselves? Mm. All those kind of things. Same question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it now at all. I'll hold <laughs> off for next week. No, you can talk about it now if you have stuff. Okay. Well, I just think sometimes when I'm thinking about the whole project that is Solacene, I get a bit frustrated with myself. I'm like, am I doing enough? Is this even causing change but i do believe if we can change how even just ourselves like we're always talking to ourselves and learning for ourselves and a few people who may listen if you can change how they see themselves as a role in like the community of humans like that ecosystem but also in the larger ecosystem they live in i think that's just one of the most powerful agents for change is empowering people but not through dread i think if we act through like fear of like fear of climate change yeah. it's going to be you get burnt out quicker but if you're coming from a point of inspiration and stories and trying to perhaps conserve this future that you're imagining or conserve a past that you're imagining mm -hmm. i think you'll be burnt out less quickly that's the gist of it yeah i think i think i mean i do think it can do a lot of good mm -hmm. it, it was questioning just like the semantics of saving nature yeah but in terms of doing a lot of good i think we're in, in agreement and especially it's the idea of presenting a north star mm -hmm. this is the utopia yeah this or encouraging like people excellent. 
because what you're talking about dread like that's a, obviously a bad way of motivating people but also something that i think is kind of sneaky bad that people don't talk about or that, that we think is good rather is um or, or should i say sneaky empty like sneaky doesn't do anything is those kind of like scientific like wow statements like um oh you were made of stardust mm-hmm. and it's like yeah we get it we're part of nature and then mm-hmm. what like it doesn't really go anywhere it just kind of serves to to make to make you think but not mm-hmm. really make you think and in a way puff the human ego you know what i mean yeah i think making it not about yourself is yes, very important exactly. and not just not making it about yourself but not focusing all on your like personal responsibility like it's going to take more than just everybody living sustainably it's going to take well i say that every like average person living sustainably still wouldn't exactly change the whole system so it's like you need to be politically engaged and engaged with yeah creating new infrastructure new structures yeah structural change or to use the language of storytelling paradigm shifts paradigm shifts exactly the next question probably the title of this episode i think haven't really titled (laughs) yet is what's your favorite ecosystem for clarity I got the definition of ecosystem. Thank you. Which is a biological community of interacting organisms and their physical environment. Because one of the problems I had when trying to answer this, one, there's a lot of ecosystems that I think are really cool. Two, the vocabulary. Like, it's difficult to name them. You always kind of go, you know, it's rocky and wavy and Mm -hmm. like grassy, but those aren't really precise terms. Mm -hmm. So ecosystems, those are hard to talk about as in specific ones. Um, there are biomes. You know about biomes? Yeah, I know about biomes. What's the biome? There's the... There's, like, wet biomes. I didn't ask for examples. I asked for a definition. <laughs> a biome is a set of ecosystems, usually yeah. in one area. Kind of. They're very... A biome is, like, a very big and broad term and mm-hmm. area. There's probably only, like, 15 biomes mm-hmm. on the planet or something. It's, like, tundra, desert rainforest yeah things like that um so biomes contain ecosystems but often they can be helpful in describing ecosystems but i just wanted more specific like place locations so i went on the epa website and they divide north america into what they call eco regions Mm -hmm. and there are three different levels of specificity and each of them often kind of fall within the same umbrella biomes so like if you think about north america um, the USA has that kind of desert, and then the rest of it, you know, Appalachia and let's say northern Canada. So it's roughly like three or four different biomes, but each of those mm-hmm. contains several different eco regions, each of which of those contains several different ecosystems. You probably didn't think that much about the specificity. I won't, like the bottom up. Okay. Like the least, like the most specific to my ecosystem. Okay. So. What I was talking about or thinking about is like the really specific, just like type of land in this. Like I looked at where I grew up. Yeah, that's an ecosystem. And so it was like the smallest ecosystem that I grew on, which was probably like a square 500 meters. <laughs> and it was the red spruce hummock. But then within that, it was a part of a floodplain, which was a part of a wetland. Okay. Because I was thinking I grew up in a wetland. Like I knew that from there always being people probing the ground outside my house and never telling us what they're doing trying to find bodies trying to find methane levels carbon levels biodiversity counts and stuff like that but they would just always show up on our property (laughs) and i'd be like what are they doing my parents like don't worry about it they're probing (laughs) they're probing (laughs) yeah 
Um, so I knew it was a wetland from that, but also just from the swampiness. Like it was swamp. It wasn't a pond. It wasn't a marsh. It was a swamp because there were trees. Yeah. Um, so I chose wetland and yeah, I went really specific on like exactly the type of land that I grew up on until I found the ecosystem, which was wetland. So what kind of <laughs> beings inhabit this ecosystem? Let me try and guess one. Deer. Mosquitoes. Yes, yes mosquitoes okay. do. Okay, here's the thing about wetlands. They're not wet. They're not land. They're wetland. So there's a lot of organisms that just have adapted to inhabit wetlands. So you have mosquitoes are very drawn to marshy lands. There are a lot of mosses that are just for wetlands. A lot of trees, like the willow tree. Mm. Rice is a wetland plant. But then we also have deer, beavers, like things on both sides, fish, things that could just inhabit a, a lake or could just inhabit a forest, but they also inhabit Probably wetlands. Probably a lot of birds. A lot of birds. And Probably frogs, toads. Yes. Last week you talked about that. Exactly. How you lived on a hotspot or by a hotspot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's, it's all, all coming, coming together. together. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple animals that I learned are just in wetlands are orangutans live in wetlands. You lived by orangutans? No, not me. Different types. The thing is there's there's several types, yeah. yeah. And they can exist anywhere. And alligators and crocs. They're always in swamps. Mm-hmm. And there's four types, four main types. There's plenty of types of wetlands. There's ponds, which are well-defined basins with stagnant water and like plants around the edges. Okay. But it's not, it can also be a pothole, but that's kind of man-made. <laughs> yeah. Or just like a, a hole that kind of starts to exist, Sink sinks. Hole. Yeah. That can be a pond. Or they also have these other specific names. Or a marsh, which mm-hmm. is near a body of water. So you have a river, you have a lake, and then when it floods, it becomes a marsh. Bog. Bog. Peat bog, yeah. which has a lot of moss. And then the peat is like this layer that stays wet pretty much all year. Um, but it's not always full of water, but it fills up also when it rains or there's ice melt. And then swamp, which is a wooded marsh. So it floods periodically, but there's trees. So there's willow trees. Yeah. There's those slimy trees. I don't <laughs> know what they're called. There's sometimes birch and swamps. Okay. I really like swamps. So why is this your favorite? Just because it's... I have so many fond memories. Okay. And I remember my mom also grew up in this area. And there's always this myth about this part of the woods that would flood right before winter and then you'd be able to skate on it. Whoa. But it was just like I knew these woods very well during the summer. (laughs) And they were just like woods. There was no water. I know this brush like the back of my hand. Exactly. (laughs) But then one year... I was like, I'm going to go try and find this mythical spring that where in the summer it's dry, but then in the winter apparently it's skatable. And guess what I found? The coolest, most like Narnia skating pond. Well, it's not a pond because it's probably like less than a foot deep. Okay. But this network of ice that you can skate through the trees. What? Because all of the small plants get kind of crushed down by the snow and the ice. So it's just the trees, and you can kind of skate through them like you're in a movie. Did you do that? It was really that? lovely. Yes. How old were you? Like 16. Sounds very By cool. By the time I had the, the bravery to go out there. I don't know why I thought I was going to like fall into a sinkhole or something. But, yeah. Well, skating in the wild, that can be dangerous, can't it? Yeah. But I guess not when it's so shallow. Exactly. But I was picturing it being really deep. Um, another reason I really like wetlands is because of their 
environmental impact. They sequester carbon and methane. They stop erosion. They're being studied to filter bioplastics out of like big Whoa. waterways. And we've, in the last hundred years, dried up 50% of the world's wetlands. Mm-hmm. And they filter water. When you remove a wetland, like dig it up or fill it in with concrete or just dry soil, the water table dries up because they, otherwise the water would just like go into the ocean. But these guys are kind of an intermediary to get the water down into the water table. But they also, during droughts, release water. So they're just like, what would you, they're like a a heater Mm -hmm. or like a heating system in a home. A A heat pump. They're exactly like that. Do you remember that? mangrove tree that we saw in europe yes so big and rooty so wonderful i'd never seen one but that was very cool yeah do you remember that also that swamp that used to be by my house mm-hmm. what what do you think that would classify as swamp i think it's swamp were there trees in it yeah it was, yeah. It was in the forest yeah um always a lot of mosquitoes there mm-hmm. stagnant water and one time i found a skull not mm-hmm. a human skull i think it was a deer yeah did you ever see that skull I guess I saw the skull now. It was very long. Yeah. It was kind of confusing. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) my favorite ecosystem, I went with somewhere that I want to live in the future. I've never been there, but I really like the idea of it. Do you want to guess where? Somewhere I want to live in the future. Mountain? I mean, like a specific place. Somewhere you want to live in the future. Yeah. It's north. You want to live in (laughs) Alaska or the Northern Territories. Close, between them, the Yukon. Okay. Because I always thought that the northern areas, those are miserable. Those are always cold. But in the summer, they're quite beautiful. The capital of Yukon is Whitehorse. And the July temperature, it's like 16 degrees on average. January temperature is like minus 20 on average. But in the summer, beautiful blues, beautiful greens. And I was inspired by a previous organism of the week, which was the muscots. Remember that big kind of woolly... Bison, it's like one of the few hairy megafauna that has survived through the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. So a very strong guy, a very adaptable guy. I said they were very smelly, which I think would be cool. So I just wanted to know where they live. And there is a Yukon Wildlife Preserve just outside of Whitehorse. I went on the website. It says, bring a jacket. So <laughs> that was funny. The thing with you is your average body temperature is probably 10 above the average humans. Right. So you'd be fine up there. Well, I think I would really like it. Um so yeah, this Yukon Wildlife Preserve, they have 120 animals, including the muskox. There's like woolly bison, um, arctic fox, uh, a lot of moose, that kind of thing. 750 acres. So this is why I was trying to kind of quantify it in terms of biome, ecoregion, ecosystem. There's obviously mm-hmm. a lot of ecosystems within this. Mm-hmm. But I'll just describe some of the features. There are like some of the oldest rocks, uh, preserved uh, rock formations in North America, apparently. And it's obviously dry, it's cold. There is usually like shallow or patchy uh, snow for most of the year, not a lot of precipitation. So we wouldn't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to like pitch it to you as a place to live. Um, A lot of roots and mosses and like grasses in the summer and that kind of thing. Um, Needly trees, we like those. We do. And I did look on the EPA website. It says that this place is in the northwestern forested mountains. It's called the Watson Highlands, hmm. which I think is just a cool name it for It is a good name. Watson Highlands. Yeah, I, I like this ecosystem, or I think I will like it, because I think it's unappealing for most humans. Hmm. Discuss. 
it's still very valuable. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so kind of, I imagine, gray and ugly for most of the year. But mm -hmm. summer looks beautiful. But it's cold. Not many things grow. There's dangerous animals. There's bears. There's moose and that kind of thing. But there's a Hayao Miyazaki quote, right? He said, I'm paraphrasing, but we should try and we should value nature not because it's beautiful, but because it's ugly in some mm -hmm. regards. And I think that's that's what I was trying to get at with this one. I like ecosystems. That reminds me, though. I think someone recently told me that ecosystems like aren't a thing anymore when they teach kids about it. Yeah. So maybe we can look into that. It might just be a like two minute segment. <laughs> they might be using but it... an outdated term. Yeah. Get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> canceled by the scientific yeah. community. So we'll look into that for next week. Read some books. Right. So speaking of that ecosystem I was talking about, the Northwestern Forested Mountains, the organism of the week for this week, if you're new to Solocene, we don't have sponsors. We sponsor an organism every week, and they're the ones who we feature. Yeah. So this week, it is the Blue Sea Star, which obviously is native to the Yukon. Is it? No, it isn't. I'm just joking. I'll show a picture now. You can describe it. So you've all seen a, a five-pointed yeah. shape. I mean, this one really is Matisse-esque. Yeah, it does look like Matisse. It's a blue starfish. <laughs> don't know how to describe it other than that. He's rotating it. He's very low definition. Okay. Well, it's colored with crayon. I'll take that as a, as a compliment. Mention it as a compliment. Sure. Very simple. But it is a very simple creature. It's a simple creature. creature, yeah. And I asked you, hey, have you done Sea Star for Organism of the Week before? And you said yes. But I said, well, I'm going to do one anyway because I really like this blue one. And I was originally going to do like a coral reef or... Um, what's it called, rocky tidal pool ecosystem, mm -hmm. because my teachers in university and also in high school always talked about these ecosystems. It was the only one that I was kind of familiar with. We lived in Nova Scotia, so while there weren't many crazy starfish like this one, there were a lot of starfish, mm -hmm. jellies, and we were always on the beach, saw a lot of these things up close and personal um, in contrast to the muskox in the Yukon, which I'm unfortunately yet to meet. And also, I was thinking about it this morning as I colored this. First, I thought, well, I used to want to be a marine biologist. But then I thought, I'm going to rephrase it. I will become a marine biologist. Oh, this is news to me. Yeah. Well, what cool. do you think of that idea? I don't see why not. I hope <laughs> to someday just have a couple of random like degrees yeah. that I just kind of know these things for the sake of knowing them mm -hmm. and inspiring other projects. Yeah. Here's the thing. One of my absolute role models as a kid was Stephen Hillenberg, who created SpongeBob, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, rest in peace. But he was a marine biologist before he got into cartoons. I used to have a little shrine to him and SpongeBob. Like, that's how mm. into it I was. And I just, I really like, this is a good reason to choose a profession, but I really like the marine sense of humor. We've talked about it. I like mm. The Little Mermaid a lot. I like SpongeBob a lot. I just find these, like, the way they move around, I find it funny. When yeah. I, I was watching today on YouTube, like, videos of this starfish moving and i was like come look at this mm -hmm. and i don't think you were fully awake so you didn't appreciate it but it was funny i'm telling you i'll also remark upon the most hilarious thing i've ever seen mm. which will always make me cry in laughter like <laughs> no matter how many times i've seen it is that scene from finding nemo you know the one <laughs> i can't say it or else i'm gonna start laughing oh in the tank right so uh <laughs> um what do they call him i can't say it i'm gonna laugh <laughs> when they sing i don't remember what yeah shark bait um, <laughs> that's very relevant actually because this starfish getting back to it the blue sea star is very common for aquariums mm. latin name is linkia levigata i think 
it is native to the Indo-Pacific Ocean. Not always blue, despite that being the common name for it. Mm. Sometimes they're like light pink or orange, nice. which I think is cool. They kind of just hang around on coral reefs. They reach about 30 centimeters in diameter. They are eaten by pufferfish, Mrs. Mm. Puff, um, shrimp, even some anemones. And it says for their diet, I just quoted this because I thought it's funny, they graze on organic films. And I was like, I would really like some organic films because I like movies and uh, call myself an environmentalist. Also sponge and algae. So given the the social dynamics in SpongeBob, I don't think that would be real life. No. I think They'd be eating Patrick, each other. Yeah. Yeah. Just some general facts about starfish. Excuse me, sea stars because they are not fish. They have no gills, no scales, no fins, not a fish. They live in salt water, and they use seawater instead of blood to pump nutrients around. Yeah. Resourceful. Very crazy. They have those little suckers, which if you were like me and you just thought that starfish were hard, I'm telling you, look it up on YouTube. You'll see these guys. They look like the blob, but mm. shaped in with five limbs. Yeah. And there's 2,000 different types. And they are from a group of marine invertebrates called echinoderms, which is 500 million years old. Wow. They yeah. just seem like an evolutionary anomaly, but maybe 500,000 years ago, everything was just like a weird 500 shape. 500 million years old. Sorry. 500 million yeah. years ago, everything was like shaped creepily. It's not creepy, though. I think they're, <laughs> they're, they, they perfectly ride that line between in motion, unsettling. Mm. But when you just look at them, like if it's they're sleeping or something, yeah. comforting, yeah. Like you want to sleep on a bed of them. Yeah. I do anyway. That's why I want to be a marine biologist. Okay. Maybe they so. shouldn't let me in the ocean, but <laughs> they just <laughs> zoomed out and you're in your scuba suit just Yeah. Laying on them like you're crashing now. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Yeah. Another movie that I really, really like. It's true. Don't you just want to be out there on the boat? I like boats. Also I'm speaking kind of jokingly, but kind of seriously. I think I could see myself on an expedition. Yeah. I mean life is long. That's true. You have lots of things you can do. I always think I'm going to randomly become like an engineer or something. So <laughs> that's a little bit more of an enterprise, but we'll yeah. see. We're in our late 30s, but... <laughs> We're not in our 30s. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some threats to the sea star? Things that eat it. What are some threats to nature? Us. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to talk about some of the biggest problems facing nature. And... I started by just listing the literal top things yeah. threatening it, but I also want to talk about some things that I think are threatening it that aren't on the UN website. Okay. So I'll start with those because they're more interesting. But I also say the other half of this question was, how can we spin them into positives or how can we talk about them in a way which is about opportunity? Because that's what Solocene is. Mm -hmm. If we were just focusing, not just, but if we were mostly focusing on what's happening today, I don't think the semester would be a very cheery one so we're going to be mm. talking with our slightly fantastical but mostly optimistic uh glasses on and trying to put a smile on your face yeah can i also mention in the zine you coined the term anti-statistics yeah okay which we're going to be featuring in the zine yeah so it'd be like a statistic but it'd be the solocene version of it so like in the solocene there aren't 20 million tons of carbon <laughs> being pumped into the atmosphere yeah. or things like that it's just kind of comedic and then but it's also informative. You, yes. To make you read them and not go, oh. To make you read them and you go, oh. Huh. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. 
So the first thing I wanted to talk about is segmentation of nature. So we are kind of cutting it up, putting highways through it, or just literally deforesting, mm. which is one of the major UN things that they listed. But I think segmenting nature is counterintuitive if you told a child, how can we preserve nature? The first thing they'd say is just like probably leave chunks of it, not leave alleys of it. Alleys or what are those things called? Nature clumps, nature clusters. So it's like when someone's clear cutting, which is clear cutting, if they leave nature clumps, which are these tiny groups of like three or four trees, Mm -hmm. then it's not counted as clear cutting in like the eyes of the government. But I just think, okay, we need to harvest trees. I think we'll always need to harvest trees. But when you do it, do it in, do it like sustainably. Don't cut down large clumps and then leaving the animals have to like face this desert to get from one place to another. <laughs> kind of had this under the umbrella. I only chose three things because I wanted to focus on the biggest ones, mm-hmm. the umbrella of habitat loss. Mm-hmm. But deforestation is its own separate issue because mm-hmm. you're also, you're destroying the habitat on one hand. So kind of crushing the ecosystems and the organisms, but releasing a lot of that sweet, sweet carbon and removing the so- sequestration. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to talk about is waste which goes into literally all of these, like energy production, transportation, it's all the problem is the waste yeah. and the non-circularity of things. But it's like you can't exactly make fossil fuel burning industries or transportation circular. Like it just is unattainable now. Mm. And I think it's just in the long term also just unsustainable. Um, but waste also just in literally littering in... Yeah, the waste that we produce from our lifestyles. Yeah. I saw this stat. It said something like the average North American um, produces about five pounds of just like garbage a day. And but you like, think How? about it. You that go to the grocery the store yeah. and I feel like within a few days, if you just buy everything in packaging, like your bin is just full in a couple of days. It's almost unavoidable if you're shopping at conventional grocery stores and shopping at zero waste ones is like unattainable for the average income, I'd say. Yeah. And yeah, you can make a lot of good choices, reduce, reuse, recycle, but it's still like our recycling bin is just like full. So how can we spin this into an opportunity <laughs> rather than an a opportunity. problem? Um, thinking creatively about how you get your food, perhaps. Yeah, it's an opportunity to spin um, supply chains into something mm-hmm. more zero waste, as you say. Circular. More natural, circular. Yeah. Rethink economics. Mm-hmm. Also, just lowering our consumption a bit. That's one of the biggest problems that the UN listed. Um, It's not, I think, lowering your consumption, being mindful about your consumption, not consuming for the sake of it. And, yeah, finding value in things that aren't material. Mm. And what I was trying to get at with, like, your bin fills up is, it's, like, literally the only wasteful things that I feel like I would buy is food. I'm not exactly buying, like, a new electronic device. That's a whole other can of worms of yeah. like you buy an iphone and it's in just like three boxes mm-hmm. that's a whole other thing but just like the necessities i feel like we could just get those down and it would do wonders for waste so focus on like the necessities the toilet papers the how you buy your strawberries just like <laughs> start from the bottom and then we can reach the how to buy a tv circularly yeah which is a whole other thing which we'll probably talk about it's an opportunity to reduce our materialism as you talked about and our dependency on retail therapy in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and to become more more local and more in tune with things like food or clothes, which are so mm-hmm. now so kind of alienated from us. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's just an opportunity to increase our quality of life. Who doesn't like that? Yeah. Of course, the biggest problem facing nature is climate change caused by greenhouse gases. And this has had many podcasts devoted to it and will continue to do so. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in the future in the semester. But I think it's difficult to speak about that positively or to, to, to spin that. But I'll do my best. I think this provides us the opportunity, of course, to to work together as a species and to cooperate um, across different ideological and geographic lines and things, but also to kind of take stock of where industrialization and the modern era and technology has taken the, the level of like impact and power that our species has now and to orient ourselves so that sustainability is the north on mm -hmm. a on a compass of sustainability which we've never really had to do before because we were never so powerful that we could just i mean that when you think about it like climate change is that's one of the biggest ways that you can change a planet it's like we're just changing the temperature so it's kind of it's kind of cool when you think about it if we're doing like <laughs> this, this inadvertent uh terraforming or something mm. it's not cool but i mean it's the magnitude of it is impressive when you put it like that with no value mm -hmm. it's impressive so it gives us an opportunity to to reorient to use our innovation and all our skills our knowledge our technology for good mm -hmm. <laughs> uh rethink economics as i said before and also kind of trim the fat in all the ways that industry society economics uh, lifestyles have gotten really bloated like you walk around a dollarama, as we call them in Canada, a dollar store, and you're like, none of this needs to exist. None of this needs to be here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, trimming. Mm -hmm. That's that's. It's difficult to to spin climate change into a, an opportunity. Uh, and there's also it's like there's the greenhouse gases doing that, but also it's ocean acidification, and is it? It's a wicked problem. Wicked. But maybe we need some wicked solutions. What do you, or some wicked outlooks anyway? Do you have any positive things to add on to that? I think it's a good opportunity to, since we're going to have to rework every system that we're used to, to to do so, to rework <laughs> all of the social systems that are also have come along with the the ecological systems. Yeah. Um, I think if we're all working on it, which is just like any work that anyone's doing is working for or against climate change and social climate change as well. Mm -hmm. So I think we can just look at it in that that way of like since we're going to be redoing the economy perhaps we can consider <laughs> the bottom 50 percent instead of just focusing on the one percent yeah yeah and so on um and the third uh environmental problem that i want to talk about is kind of an an unattractive one or an unpopular one which is soil degradation mm -hmm. because this is a, a giant issue but because it's it doesn't really have a face and it's like who cares about rocks and dirt i mean i don't really care about it until now but uh i didn't know about it when we put it like that mm -hmm. That's that's a big issue. It's basically from farming and just everything. Soil quality is becoming practically unusable in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. and also climate is causing uh, desertification in in many areas. And there's also erosion on top of this, which I'm going to lump in, which is which is another issue. Which is mm -hmm. you talked about the wetlands and the mangroves earlier. Those are very good for preventing that. So I think this gives us an opportunity to fix food, mm. fix farming, um, to be more beautiful, sustainable tactile, which is kind of the solar scene slogan, which I thought we could talk about next week because nature is is all those things, mm -hmm. but nature right now is 
or the world right now rather is is lacking in those things. So I thought we could kind of expand on that as a as an ethos next week. Yeah. Also with soil degradation, it's an opportunity to educate with regards to the lesser known uh issues that are sometimes right beneath our feet, literally, but we don't care about or mm. know about. You know what I mean? It's like farming. Well that's for the farmers. Yeah. But it's to recognize that since we live in a global world, even though we want it to be more local, kind of the cat's out of the bag now. Um everything is I'm putting my hands together for those just listening. Yeah. And clasping the fingers. Interconnected. Yes. Yes. Everyone can do anything. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was talking about Bill Gates' latest philanthropic pursuit, which is to bring GMOs to countries that are still dealing with extreme poverty and malnutrition. And I just like, I don't know how I feel about it. Obviously, I think it's good to bring better crops, but I think we should do that but not think that's the solution of like everyone's eating gen- genetically modified food that can grow in whatever climate. I think that's like the first step, but we did that like 80 years ago and then just kind of stopped. It feels like, I think we should be investing a lot of money in research and how to genetically modify or just like modify how we grow food to be more plentiful, but also more nutritious because right now I feel like it's just plentiful. The nutrients, I mean, it's proven are just going down dramatically i don't know if we can talk with the next week because we have a lot and it's also slightly in the food semester but talk a bit about soil degradation and how it's impacting our food yeah, in like a few fine. weeks yeah um but that just made me think i was like that's good that like someone's thinking still about expanding our food production but we have enough food to feed everyone we just need to change the systems anyway i have a lot of thoughts about that We'll save for a future week. My final thing that I can talk about for biggest problem facing nature is that we don't care. <laughs> don't you? The people, the average people, they care. They like going for their fall hikes and taking their Instagram pictures. Oh my. They like putting their babies in the pile of leaves for the Instagram pictures. What have I done to you? I've turned you hateful. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to care. We need to care that the trees are losing their leaves too early. Yeah. That they are getting diseases and they're not able to fight the diseases because they're monocrops or because they're a random tree planted in North America that has no business being here and then it's going to become an invasive species. We need to care about these little things. We need to care about the bugs. Yeah, that's why I talked about with empathy, right? Yeah. I think this semester might turn you (laughs) vegan and I'm not looking forward to that. (laughs) No, I don't think it would turn me vegan. No offense to any listening vegans. Yeah. I just, Alicia cooks a lot of our food, so. <laughs> I have a lot of power over what we eat, yeah. yeah. I think it might turn me a bit more degrowth. Which if has that's been possible. slippery yeah. slope, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you all for listening to the first of many episodes on nature. I hope it wasn't too chaotic because I'm very passionate. I put an exclamation point on the head of my notes and then put week one smiley face. Oh, wow. I'm really happy. Um, the I zine is mine. here. Yep, zine. Zine's here if you'd like to buy it. You could, perhaps we'll think about some kind of a bundle of the oh, three yeah, of them. Oh yeah, for the three. We should yeah. also mention for the nature zine, we mentioned it in the other, in the zine specific episode, but all the money doesn't go to us. None of the money goes to us, actually. Yeah, none of the to, money goes uh, towards us. Eco-Justice. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that. So Eco-Justice is a organization which supports 
lawyers to do pro bono work for the environment Mm -hmm. and for marginalized people relating to the environment. So I once got to even attend an open debate, like, you know, in those TV shows, like, go in, there's the judge, there's the two people. So I got to go to an eco-justice trial, trial, (laughs) and they were defending these endangered species. Yeah. And it's just like, we speak for, it was just like the Lorax Mm -hmm. in real life is what eco-justice is. And I really like them. They're Canadian based. And I mean, just to support, I feel like it's some of the most important work of like going to the government, holding the government accountable for like, (laughs) it was literally these lawyers against the government. I think there's a lot of different, (laughs) like we were looking at it. There's a lot of different foundations. It's, Mm -hmm. It's worthwhile to, um, to donate towards but this one is is very conservation and preservation themed which we thought was relevant mm-hmm. for the semester and also it just seems like yeah it's a it's a genuinely effective way while also maintaining a level of uh, idealism mm-hmm. loyal idealism yeah we also have like a connection to it just like from as i said the experience in that course where i got to go attend it and yeah we could have picked basically any conservation organization <laughs> but pick this one you can check it out support them on your own if you don't feel like buying the zine but also if you want to get a zine yes. while supporting this organization i will link it yeah it'll be linked below so thank you all for listening we look forward to seeing you in an episode in the future bye <laughs>